Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 519 with Buster Benson. Buster is sharing how to conquer your fear of conflict and disagree excellently. You'll learn one, the surprising cost of avoiding conflict, two, eight crucial steps for productive disagreement, and three, what to do when you disagree with your boss. So to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to apps we've referenced, they're on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep519 or click within your podcast app expansion of the episode notes or description and you can tap the link to get there all the faster. Now here's Buster's story. Buster Benson is an entrepreneur and a former product leader at Amazon, Twitter, Slack, and Patreon. He's now editor of and writer for The Better Humans publication on Medium, creator of 750words.com, which brings private journaling to a safe space on the web and developer of Fruitful Zone, an online platform facilitating healthy discourse. He's also the author of the Cognitive Bias Cheat Sheet, which hangs in my office and has been read over one million times. Big thanks to Buster for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Buster. Buster, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to be talking to you. There have been no other guests who have created a poster that hangs in my office. (laughs) Oh, wow. Cool. So you have that unique distinction, the Cognitive Bias Codex. It is a work of art. And could you maybe just share the story of that, just because I think it's it's so cool. Yeah, it was a really strange and long story. But like, basically, I have been interested in cognitive biases fairly, pretty much my whole life. And and yet, I always found them really hard to remember. There's just so many of them. There's 200 plus. They all have really weird names, like the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Or, you know, so there was no easy way for me to actually internalize what was happening here. And I decided to take a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago in 2016 to essentially try to eat this uh, entire body of knowledge and, and figure out how do I synthesize it into something I can understand. And so what came out of it was this framework where instead of thinking about biases as mental bugs where your brain is you know, glitching out, um, they're actually all there to solve hard problems. Like there's too much information in the world, so we do have to filter some things out. Nothing really makes sense, so we do have to connect the dots and fill in, fill in the gaps with you know, sometimes generalities and stereotypes. And, and, and we also have to do things. Like we can't just sit and talk about it all day long. We have to go out and make decisions and take action. And that means that we have to be confident even though we don't have all the information in front of us. And so all of the 
biases in the world fit into these categories. And when this post was written, I figured there, it might, might as well make it visual because this is already still such a hard topic. Let's make it look really nice. And the poster came out of that. And with a friend of mine, John Manuli again, <laughs> yeah, he really helped make it look like, you know, something beautiful, like a work of art. Yes. Well, well, it is. And, and it hangs there. And, and I've been uh, wondering if it's possible for me to get that is uh, a sound wrapped, like an acoustic panel, you know, and, and that'd be the the visual. So it serves a, a double duty. Oh yeah. Well, anyway, so, so thank you for that. It's really cool. And and I love some of those names that they're, they're funny. Some of them are crazy and some of them are intuitive. Like the Ikea effect. It's like, Oh, that's exactly what I think it would be. Exactly. <laughs> I, yeah. I spent all this time assembling something. I think it's worth more because I invested that. Yeah. Is there a particular cognitive bias that, that shows up for you a lot still today, even after all of your research and work? Well, that's the thing is they don't go away just because you know the name, unfortunately. Yeah. So, the, you know, confirmation bias is obviously one that really affects us today where we tend to not only prefer information that, that confirms us, but now we're actually also just only seeking out sources of information that confirm our biases. So that's an important one to think about. There's also the one called naive realism, which is really interesting and somewhat depressing, I guess, if you think about it too much. But it's this idea that we think that what we think of people is what they're actually thinking. And this happens a lot in conversation and debate and disagreement. You know, we might say like, oh, wait, I don't understand why you think this. And suddenly your brain's like, here's a reason why they think it. It's because they're dumb. And then we believe that. And that's a strange bias yeah. that we do because we can't read minds. We have to fill in the gaps there. But we could also ask a question instead of filling in the gaps, and especially if they're right there in front of us. So that one really is on my mind recently. Oh, yeah. Well, well and a perfect segue uh, to your, your recently released book, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement, because I think that that's quite uh, one way that things go go sour real fast is if you say, well, oh, the reason that person thinks that is because he or she is a moron or <laughs> a racist or a hates me, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that gets you into some trouble. So uh, maybe let's zoom out a little bit and, and say sort of what's the big idea uh, behind your latest work here? Why are we yelling? And yeah, let's get oriented that way. Yeah. So similar to the, to the cognitive bias approach, I felt like there's all these books about negotiation and rationality and persuasion that were really useful in particular contexts like work or, you know, sales or debate in the courtroom, that kind of stuff. But there was, there weren't that many ways to really make it real for my everyday life. Like what's going to help me have a better conversation with my friend over you know, a meal? What's going to help me have better conversations as I'm going on a walk with my son? You know, these things where, we don't have the tools. We haven't been really taught how to have these conversations in a productive way. And so we resort to just these trial and error attempts. And some of us have luckily stumbled into the right approaches and some of us didn't. And there's no real way to, to help people develop that skill. So that, that was my impetus for writing this, you know, first for myself, because I really needed these skills and I wanted to synthesize it in a way that made sense to me, but also for other people, because I feel like more and more these days, we just feel stuck and frustrated with the way that our conversations are going. Well, and I'd love it if, do you have any data that sort of uh, tell that story? Like, uh, I'm wondering if things sure seem nastier and more hostile uh, these days and, and less productive in our disagreements, but do you have any proof? Yeah, there's proof everywhere you look. You know, so, so depending on which avenue or domain of the world you want to look, there's different ones. So one of them I found is that you know, in a work setting, for example, which is one of the safest ones, 85% of people believe that they have some crucial information for, about the business, about the company, and they're not talking about it because they don't want to be 
they don't want to start an argument. And so that's where conflict avoidance has really risen to the surface. Oh, wow. But boy, what? Uh, oh, sorry. I, that's, uh, that's huge. It's shocking, right? That is just, that's huge. I, I think that's like, the core of so much dysfunction <laughs> right there is, right. yeah, I got some info and I'm not telling you, uh, not because I'm diabolically trying to sabotage anything, but just because, oh man, this is going to cause a big old argument. I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. You don't, yeah. It's, if you don't feel like it's a safe environment to have disagreements or you don't know how to have them, you're not going to move forward and you're not going to have that conversation. And that's just going to linger and get worse and eventually pop up in some other some other person's <laughs> laugh. So it is, you know, and this happens not only at work, but obviously also in the political sphere. We don't necessarily think that we're trying to go out there and solve problems where we all know what the problems are and we're just unhappy about it and, and yelling about it. I think there's ways that we can move away from this conflict avoidance stance, which turned out to be way more common than the unproductive disagreement stance. You know, most people are not having that many yeah. unproductive disagreements. They're just, they've given up. And that's even worse in some senses in terms of like, well, if you've already given up, how do we get you back in the game so that we can actually work through these problems? Yeah. Well, do tell. How how do we do that? So you're feeling like, oh, this is going to cause a big argument. I'm not even going to bring it up. Not even going to go there. What's sort of the next step? Yeah. So one of the first things we need to do is remember that other people are, are humans and other people are as complex as us. And so to do this, when we go into a situation where we're feeling like, I think that they aren't as smart as I am, or I think they don't under, they don't get it, that's an opportunity to fill in the gaps with real information. So having someone in front of you that has all this information and perspective is, is actually a blessing. You can ask them, you know, tell me, I just don't get how this works for you. Like, what was, what's the story? What's the background? How did this happen? Help me get there. Help me see the world through your perspective, because that's information that we don't have. And until we have it, we just feel confused and baffled. And it's frustrating. It's not, it doesn't feel good. So use these people, you know, that you might normally think of as opponents or enemies as a source of information that can help you feel a little bit more relaxed about the world if you can understand their perspective better. And that's really the first step is just think about what are the openings? What are the stories we can glean from each other in a safer setting to have a, a wider perspective of the world, not necessarily to change minds or anything, but just to see it from one more, you know, a little bit higher on the, on the, you know, you know, the plane of, of perspective so that you can see like this person exists because that's ha this happened to them. And this sort of, this is, this is our story. And I'm like this because this happened to me. And I can see now why we both exist in the same world and we both think we're doing the right thing. Oh, so when you say, how did you get here? You don't specifically mean, I don't know why you did the project a certain way, uh, but right, their whole life backstory, history, picture. Yeah, we oftentimes resort to what are the facts, where the evidence, the facts and the evidence are there to prop up our story once we already have it for the most part. So asking for that is really about continuing the information, bludgeoning, you know, and looking at who could, who could find the gotcha information. The stories behind the facts are the, are the real reason we believe things. And that's what we should go after because those are rich. Those are really filled with interesting detail. They're exciting to hear about. They are new. And we're, our brains are trained to really delight in hearing these kinds of stories. That's why all of our fiction is story-based. It's not about, here's more facts about the world. You know, world builders that just spend all the time telling you about the small details. You don't really, you get bored quick. You want the story. You want the plot. Mm -hmm. And so could you maybe give us uh, some examples of, of what a rich backstory sounds like and how it can color, shape, and inform uh, a, a position or an opinion and, and how a, a different backstory would give rise to maybe a, a contrary opinion? 
or view? Yeah, so I, I try to tackle gun control in one of the chapters, and I tried a bunch of different things online, in person. What ended up working was having a salon or a potluck at my house and inviting a bunch of people that had different experiences with guns. And we went around the table and each shared our own personal story. There's someone that was a former NRA member. There's someone that was, you know, had a bunch of assault rifles or someone that just bought a shotgun. There's a bunch of people that have never fired a gun before. There's people that have had suicide in their family. There's people that had violence in their family. And so just going around and saying, oh, wait, I know some of you. I don't know some of you, but I don't know any of these stories. And the, the variety was just so eye-opening just to begin with. And that was really great. But the interesting part came when we decided to figure out what what's a policy we can all come to? What policy do we think is going to have the biggest impact on gun violence? And let's come up with proposals and then we'll tear them apart together just for fun. And we'll see where it goes. Because if we all have the answers, this should be easy. What ended up happening is we all went into small groups and came back and had our proposals and they were all terrible ideas. We all found flaws instantly. And this was eye-opening, not because we learned that we didn't know, know a whole lot about this issue, but the fact that, oh wait, this is complicated. And my simplistic position on it going in is is incorrect. And that's not necessarily changing your mind, but it's saying that, okay, well, in order to really do justice to this problem, I would have to really know a lot more than I currently do. And that can be both exciting. And, you know, if that's not what you want to do, you could be like, okay, well, I don't have time to do that, but I know that the answer is out there somewhere. I hope we can facilitate conversations because we don't have the answers right now. And that was an example where I, you know, I came in with a really narrow perspective and came out thinking, oh, wait, yeah, this is more complicated than I thought. I shouldn't feel as self-righteous about this as I did before. Yeah, well, I really appreciate that example. And and I guess I'm always a little skeptical when some people seem to know everything about everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, I, oh, I forgot who said that quote, but it said, some people are more sure of everything than I am of anything. <laughs> it's very true. That's one of the biases, right? So, <laughs> yes. Overconfidence is, is a big chunk of them. Yep. Yes. Uh, so that's, in a way, that's like, call me an optimist. I mean, in a way, that's sort of discouraging. Like, oh man, this problem is going to be not resolved quickly because mm -hmm. of its difficulty and complexity. But my optimism says, okay, so there sounds like some people had some some epiphanies, some awakening, some understanding mm -hmm. about other people's viewpoints and were enriched as a result by being able to engage in, in those conversations. And well, I don't know if you're editing the story, but it doesn't sound like anyone just started screaming someone else's head off and, <laughs> and stormed out. No, definitely not. You know, having food there also helped a lot because sure. food calms you down. It, it, it sort of regulates your blood pressure a little bit more. Um, and there's also this cultural element of like, if you're sharing food with someone, you, you sort of see them as, as a peer or as a, as a, member of your of your tribe more than if they were if you're shutting at them over facebook comments or you know something like that okay well so 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 i mean there's one you know quick tip right there hey food is handy mm -hmm. i guess i'm wondering you know what are sort of like the general principles such that we can disagree with folks and and walk away sort of with our relationship at least not harmed, but hopefully improved. I, I think that's yeah. sort of challenging is, is folks believe, and, and sometimes it's true, that, boy, if I go here and we argue about this, you know, they're going to respect me less, or I'm going to respect them less, right. or it's going to get ugly in one way or another. So yeah. how do we not have that happen? Yeah, it's intimidating because, you know, it is a hard skill to acquire and a hard skill to practice. And if we're not, if we're not aware of how where our skill level is, we'll oftentimes put ourselves in situations that are above our, our skill level. And 
So that's why I advocate like this. Let's just like start with small steps and, and get better in safer places and then move into harder ones, more challenging ones. So one way to think about it is that we don't need to answer every problem. You know, we can, we can think of the world as a bunch of problems that are happening, a bunch of different people that are out there. And what is the one or the two or the three that we are most well-suited to really deeply immerse ourselves in, understand from, from the inside and to proactively act on? And that feeling of, you know, when things happen in the news and you have the answer in your head, you're like, why doesn't everyone just do the thing that's obvious to me? Um, that feeling goes away when you start to understand some of the problems deeply and you can respect that there's probably more complexity going on. And secondarily, it helps us propose that we do have productive disagreement more often because unless someone is thinking about this and working on it, nothing's going to happen and these problems are just going to get worse. So, you know, this mix of like, what is going to help me feel better about going, like what's going to lower my anxiety about just watching the news or reading the news or, you know, having family dinners. Part of that is just being okay with this ambiguity of like, these problems are harder than I, than I thought they were, but also what can we do to make each other better at having these conversations? Uh, first, we have to know what that means to ourselves. But secondly, we have to expect it of each other and help people get there because nobody taught us this. We don't learn this in school. We don't learn it at work. And it's something that we should all be better at. And so then when it comes to developing these skills, I mean, what are, are some of the uh, the practices or, or action steps or, or things we should do to, to get them going? The easiest one just to begin with is just to want to do it. And I, I think it sounds sort of trite, but we go about most of our day in a pretty reactive mode where we're just like, okay, if this bad thing happened, I'm going to go attack that. This bad thing happened, I'm going to go attack that. Versus like, okay, well, what would it take for me to just pay more attention to my reactions to these things and to think about like, what would my, what, if I did the same thing over and over again, things aren't going to get better. So let's just pay attention to it. I say like starting a disagreement journal is a great way to do that if you're into journaling um, or just like talking to yourself and what, going on a walk and say, okay, let's, let's go back in that conversation and think about where I went off the tracks, where the thing that triggered me made me change from one that was like asking open questions to one that was more like defensive or even insulting or, or whatever it is and see like, what was it that was important to me that got um, challenged and maybe even follow up with that person the next day and say like, Hey, remember that conversation we had? I realized after the fact that I felt a little bit threatened because this is a value I held. Do you have that value? Is this something that you were really thinking about? What is your perspective on that? And you might be able to use that as a bridge because there might be something you know, that, well, yeah, of course that's important, but I was talking about this other thing completely different from that topic. And I'm sorry for, you know, lashing out, you know, and so you can use this as a way to go back after the fact and repair that relationship and then use it as a way to connect it and make sure that the next one is a little bit better because it's really hard at the moment to to know what to do until you've sort of reflected on things a little bit. And, and so you've got uh, specifically an eight-step process here to become better at productive disagreement. Could you give us perhaps, uh, you know, one-ish minute or less on, on each of these steps? Sure. So there's eight of them. Um, each one of them is about summarizing a big field of work. So the first one is watch how anxiety sparks. That's what we've been talking about mostly, like this mindfulness about that moment that you switch from the calm, curious, open person to the defensive, uh, sort of protective person, and sort of really understand that where that switch happens and use that as a way to identify your own values. Number two is to talk to your internal voices. We all have inherited these, some voices that are very authoritarian, some voices that are very calm and reasonable, and some voices that are just like, this, screw this, I'm out, I flip the table and leave. And I call it, you know, that's the conflict avoidance one. And 
it's different in each of our heads. And we oftentimes think these thoughts and then we speak them out loud. And so there are, our internal voices turn into our external voices. And to understand why we say things the way we do, we can sort of go back and think about where does that voice come from? Who in my life, you know, am I mimicking in that in that voice? Do I still need it? And think about and think about that. Um, that's cognitive behavioral therapy and sort of the like the mini minds theory of psychology, which is really interesting. It can help us tease apart like these these thoughts aren't us necessarily. Number three is develop honest bias, which is sort of the further step past the the poster that you have. Uh, like not only like what are the biases, but what do we do with them? How can we use this information to have better conversations? And I think developing honest bias is the key here. Like rather than trying to unbias yourself or point out the bias in other people, look for the damage that it does and repair that because that's tangible. It's practical. It's right in front of you. It's something that you can actually have an impact on versus trying to change the wiring in someone's mind. It's going to be really, really hard and frustrating. And, and so to do that, are you, are you just sort of identifying like, uh, hey, th- this is some things that show up for me in, in the bias or, or, or what are you doing exactly? Depending on what the situation is, you can say like, okay, well, in the work situation, we have this hiring flow that is biased towards candidates that come out of you know Ivy League colleges. Just fix that and say like, okay, who knows who set that up and whose bias was the one that designed it, but you can actually fix the process itself. Um, the same goes for you know, if you're looking for a new job or you're looking for a new place to live or any decision that you're trying to make, you can say like, okay, well, regardless of what my initial state is, like I might seek out familiar things or I might seek out the safe thing or I might seek out the thing that makes me look the best. What options did you undervalue that you can add back onto the list before you make a decision? And so there's there's these 13 questions you can ask yourself about like, you know, am I favoring the bizarre, interesting, adventurous answers over these the seemingly boring ones? And even though the boring ones might be better answers for me and just add them back on the list and then look at them all together. So you don't have to change your bias. You can just fix the results of them. Understood. Thank you. So number four is speaking for yourself. This is one that we do all the time where we speak for others, right? So we will say that party, you know, is is doing this for these reasons, or, you know, that person is, is evil because they think this. Rather than doing that, try to f- invite them into the conversation and ask them to speak for themselves and also share your perspective um, from your own stance rather than trying to imagine what they think. That's what we talked about at the very beginning. And it's a hard habit to, to break because I know speaking from experience, we are just so used to using group labels and saying like, this group of people has this intention and is doing these things for these reasons. And we don't question where we got that from because we obviously can't read their minds and we ne- we don't talk to them a whole lot. So how do we know? Let's go ask them directly. And also shows that these groups aren't as homogenous as we think they are. There's a whole lot of variation in our own groups just as, and there is a whole lot of variation in the other groups. So you can find reasonable people on both sides. Number five is asking questions that spark surprising answers. There's a whole list of questions you can just put in your back pocket and pull out right when you're feeling flooded. You're like, okay, well, I don't know how to address this, okay, I'm going to ask a question. Because we oftentimes tend to ask questions that are black and white, that are very limited in, in possibilities. And we often already prejudge many of the answers to the questions we ask. So those aren't going to return a lot of information about um, the other person that could surprise you. So open questions where no matter what they say, it's going to be interesting and surprising. I, so I think that that's a better approach and you can just make a list of these and then use them. Could you give us one or two right now? That's I, I like that way of, of articulating it. Ask a question that invites a surprising answer. So I, that, that's, yeah. that's even a little bit more than just a, not just yes or no, yeah. but uh, it, it gets you thinking about even better questions. So can you lay a couple on us? 
Yeah. So what I use a lot is just like, what am I missing about, you know, your perspective that you think would help me understand you better? I like to say like, you know, how has, how has this belief been useful for you? You know, who do you admire? All these questions are ways of pivoting into their perspective and seeing the world through their eyes, which is always surprising. In, in fact, the more different, the more bizarre they are in, their, in terms of their worldview, the more surprising it will be. And this is a self-reinforcing system because you do this once, you get an interesting answer. You're going to like it. It's going to be entertaining and ful- like meaningful to you. You're going to want to do it again. And you're going to now have more information to ask even more interesting questions. So it builds on itself in a really great way. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is fun. I guess I, I'm thinking about things like what TV or movie character do you most sort of relate, connect, identify with? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are so many ways to like bring your own personality to the questions and ask the ones that you think, you know, have some overlap with you because you can you can embed the shared interest in a question and and say, like, hey, you know, you know, let's, let's, we, we both like this, this story. Like, let's talk about it. And through that, talk about the world. Yeah. So six is to build arguments together. And this is an interesting one. It requires the other, you know, speaking for yourself, asking questions to spark inspiring answers. Building arguments together means like, let's put aside whether or not your argument is right. Let's just work on it together and make it as good as possible. Because any argument, any position has a best version of itself. Even something like, you know, the flat earth theory of the world has a best argument for it. And it's interesting because you, by bringing yourself to this question, you can be creative. You can sort of start building something that you may never have thought about before. And flat earth is sort of a facetious uh, you know, topic, but like to just illustrate the point, it's just interesting to build that up and think about, okay, well, I obviously have a lot of problems with this. I can help you address these, right? Let's find the answers to all my, all my questions. And, and then you will, you know, potentially we'll build it up to a point. If you could convince me from this argument, then, then, we, then that's a win-win as well. So um, it's a one way of just turning the conversation from combative to collaborative that can turn out to be really fun. You do have to have some trust built in there because you don't want to come across as like, oh, I'm going to, you know, go and, and, and like, let's play blocks, you know, and, and t- treat your argument as, as, a, as a game. But Assuming that you can pull it off in terms of like, yeah, I really do want to build this up for you. And I want the best person and the best people to represent your position so that I understand it. Then it can lead to really interesting places. Gotcha. Seven is cultivate neutral spaces. This is one of the hardest ones because we think that arguments exist in, you know, the land of abstractions and ideas. Really, they exist in the world of words, sounds, body language, lighting, and power dynamics and rooms and sort of it's really important to think about like which ideas are allowed on the table in this conversation. What are the power dynamics between us that maybe maybe I'm you know not going to share everything because I know that if, if you don't like it, you can fire me. So, and then there's also the question of who can be in this conversation in the first place. Who can enter the room? Can I leave the conversation if I feel like it's no longer being productive? It sort of under it brings to the surface a lot of the power dynamics that have it happen, and these are have a material impact on the success of the, of the conversation. Uh-huh. You can always turn something that's really not a neutral space into something that's more neutral. And we do this instinctively by like saying like, let's go on a walk or let's go get dinner tomorrow or, you know, let's do something where the dynamic is different and the space feels a little bit better. Or if there's sort of anonymous inputs in terms of we don't know whose name is on that idea. Right, exactly. And if people are just, you know, we don't even see faces or we don't, there's no accountability and people can drop in and drop out whenever they want. That's another thing to consider, especially online where these things happen. Yeah. And the last tip is to accept reality and then participate in it. And this is um, the the most abstract one, but really it's a call to this desire that we shouldn't try to reject the world that exists and just refuse to participate in it until it is more likable. 
it is the way it is. And the only thing we can do is be a positive or a negative influence within it. And I see disagreement as this opportunity for us all to say like, okay, we're not going to be unscathed and we're not going to be on the sidelines just critiquing all the bad things happening. Let's get into the mix. Let's be part of the solution. Let's even be willing to be vulnerable and compromised in those situations and, and admit how, our, how we're complicit in them because that's the arena that these can be resolved in. And, you know, that's, that's really the, the, the way to participate in the most, in the most productive way. So this idea that we can just exile or censor or ban all the things we don't like is the opposite. You know, let's just, let's bring everyone in and let's figure it out. But so much good stuff here. And as you kind of walk through those eight, what really stuck with me or struck me the most is that, that speak for yourself bit. And, and I remember, and this will be super quick, but, uh, Boy, when we were, were closing on our house, we had what they call a split close where the uh, the seller side was in a different room with their team. And and they were talking like through the cell phone to say our, our lawyer. And there was this one point like, oh, our, our, well, the, and so our, our lawyer was saying, well, hey, well, we would like this and that, you know, as a result of this. And then she you know hangs up the phone and says, yeah, they basically say, yeah, they think this is a shakedown. So she said, she thinks it's a shakedown. And then our real estate agent says, uh, a shakedown for them to impugn our integrity in this way. You know, and, and it was so funny. Like they didn't use the word shakedown. <laughs> our, our lawyer summarized use, uh, for them uh, using the word shakedown. And then the real estate agent uh, took great umbrage at, uh, at the words they never said. And I was just like, hey, I mean, well, sometimes lawyers, not to not to point fingers, they they come bad if stuff happens, and this happens, you know, all the time. You know, the the small, tiny, smallest steps can really derail a conversation uh, so quickly, and and so quickly that we don't even notice that it happened. So yeah, that's really a good example of just you know how easy it is to to you know go in the wrong direction. So and and also like, but there are ways to notice them and say, okay, what. Well, Let's let's hear it from them. Let can we just you know confirm that uh, this is what's happening? Because you know there's there's more to be gained by a positive outcome for everyone than to just to leave the conversation. Well, and speaking of that, well, I, I guess shakedown is probably not one of them. But I, I want to get your take <laughs> on uh, some common phrases that can show up in arguments that uh, tend to uh, make things uh, unproductive in a hurry and and show up a lot, and and some superior alternatives to those. Yeah, I mean, there are just so many. Choose a genre of, of conversation that we can tease apart a little bit. Oh, sure thing. We are professionals at a workplace uh, considering uh, what is the the best option to complete an objective in terms of should we invest in A, B, C, or D? Right. Okay. So so many things there. Yeah. One of them that you know, might be familiar to you is, you know, let's take this offline is a really, really common one in the, in the world of like, okay, that just basically means that there's too many people in the room. We want to have this decision between a smaller group of people. And I'm going to call, decide who those people are. That's unproductive. I think that there are ways to identify the goal instead of the just saying that the entire conversation that it should be taken offline. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but there's also, let's see. No, that, that makes a lot of sense in, in terms of it's quite a power grab, really. Yeah. Oh, okay. You, you <laughs> can just unilaterally declare that uh, these topics are not going to be discussed here. And, uh, and apparently at an arbitrary later time with a group of people to be determined, it may or may not be discussed. 
Right. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it is a tool that works, but it's also a tool that's slightly dysfunctional if it's misused. So I think that a lot of these tools, they have good intentions. They're like, okay, well, we're not going to ever be able to go around the room and get everyone's opinion and then figure out what this is going to be because we think that that's the, that's the, the only other option. <laughs> but there are ways to move fast and make decisions and include people at the same time, it's not a trade-off you have to make to as as much as it feels like that in the moment sometimes. Well, that's great. And, and do you have, um, could you share, you know, what would be one of your favorite approaches to, for pulling that off? Yeah, that's okay. So I was used, I was thinking of, I have, as a product leader, I have many projects where you, your team is spending months working on something. And at the very last minute, the, the leadership is like, oh, I don't know about this. What Have you considered this possible downside? And usually you have, but you only have a very limited amount of time to to talk about this. And so this can turn a project from like launching to, you know, taking months and months and months. And then they're like, okay, well, let's take, let's talk to more people. Let's take this offline. Let's revisit this, you know, in a month or whatever. One way around that is to say like, okay, well, let's just go through worst case and best case scenarios of this so that we can mitigate, you know, those possibilities that are bad and, and, and sort of look forward to the ones that are good because then they're heard. You could say like, I think the worst case scenario is that all of our advertisers are going to leave or, you know, that our users are going to revolt and you can say, okay, well, here is how we'll know if that's happening. We're going to launch it with a smaller group of people, but we're going to roll it out slowly. And if this starts happening, we're going to stop, but we're going to start going and find out if that's true or not. So turning it from like, is this going to be a problem to let's find out if it's a problem as quickly as possible and keep the ball moving forward can save months and months of time um, in a lot of these situations. And that could be used in a lot of situations where people are risk adverse and feel like they don't want to move forward until they feel more confident. But the way you feel more confident is by learning. And so there's ways to make, say like, make a prediction. Let's learn. Let's move forward. If it turns out that I'm right, great. If it turns out that you're right, we've learned something. Either way, it's going to be okay. And we're both going to learn. So that's really one of the simplest ways to, to move things forward. Thank you. And, and I'm quickly, I also want to get your take on, is there any best practice approaches or, or tips you'd suggest for when we are disagreeing with uh, our boss or someone who outranks us? Yeah. So I always like to turn it into what would the evidence be of, you know, so people, when, especially with power dynamics, there's like, do this, right? And you're like, oh, but that's a bad idea. Or I don't want to do that. Or I'm not good at that. Or sometimes it's a judgment saying like, you're not good at this, or, you know, you're not, you're not the right person for this, or, you know, your promotion is not going to happen. Those kinds of things that are really about a judgment of of the worth of something, of sometimes you, sometimes your work. The way to turn that into a productive disagreement is to say like, okay, what would you see in the world if I was performing, you know, at a, at a higher uh, quality or what would be, what evidence would there be if I was ready for a promotion or how would you see it just so that it turns it from something that's a judgment call into something that is, can be found in the world. And that's also a great way to summarize what they're really trying to say, which is like, they're going to ultimately going to use signals in the world to make these decisions. And it brings clarity to that. So turning it from something subjective to objective, saying that like in the future, if you had done these three things, or if you had, if, you know, the company had, you know, you'd spoken in front of the company and those things that happened, then I would sort of think that you're prepared for the next step versus like, oh, you know, it and you see it, or I'll let you know kind of thing, which is really vague, ambiguous, and not, and can only increase your anxiety over time. Well, Buster, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah. So the last thing I'll say is, is that the, the real 
challenge here is not to solve all disagreements and be like the perfect disagreeer, but just to have one or two to experience what that's like, that how enjoyable they can be, what it's like to actually use disagreement to connect, what it's like to actually learn a bigger perspective through a disagreement. Because if we can feel that feeling and, and sort of see that as the antidote to the anxiety we feel, then we can begin to expect it from our leaders, from our politicians in the world more broadly. Because right now we just don't expect that whole lot from from people. And because we don't, we haven't experienced it ourselves. So like taking baby steps and saying like, okay, I just want to feel this and um, sort of see it in other people as well in the long run is, is the, is the challenge here. And my hope that this sort of brings about. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote? So that you find inspiring. So not to be too trite, but like, you know, being the change you want to see in the world is, is, you know, it's a Gandhi quote, but I, I think that that is one that has really influenced my approach to the world. You know, it goes back to this accepting reality and participating. Like don't just, be the critic, be in the mix, get, get all messy in the mud and uh, get something done. Cause if that's what you want everyone else to do, then, then you got to do it too. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? In the news recently, I've, I've saw that the Stanley Milgram experiment has been debunked, um, which is really interesting to me. The, the interesting thing with experiments that I just, I love that the ones that have been falsified just because it helps us understand science as a evolving process. And one of the worst biases out there is publication bias, where we only look at the, the studies that sound good as a headline and that can sort of validate something about our lives. So I love any experiment that you know feels like it should be right, that gets disproven, just to add a little bit of that complexity back into our into our conversation. So like we can't just listen to what feels good in our studies. So Stanley Milgram, the prison experiment isn't going to be one that I would recommend reading or listening to, but the fact that it was revised and that we're now questioning this is really interesting to me. We're talking about the uh, authority with the shocks? Yeah. Yeah. The one where you would zap gotcha. people until they mm-hmm. were you know, basically dead because it was, you were the authority. Well, I want to see the latest on this. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book right now? There is this book by Jenny O'Dell called How to Do Nothing. And it is just a delightful book that is both meditative and practical and rich in imagery and stories and stuff. She talks about how to live in a world where everything is trying to make us more productive, including my book, (laughs) but, you know, and how to just maintain integrity and dignity in that sort of high pressure environment. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? My pen and paper are are the ones that I, I go by the most. To add something a little bit more quirky, I've been really interested in the art of the of tarot decks recently, and I've been using this as a way to add symbolism and interestingness to my life. You know, we just have these tendencies to get into these routines and ruts where things become really dry and 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 sort of abstract. Bringing back art into our work is really important to just remember that there's a creative force that goes into the things we do. You know, not not necessarily advocating for the, the you know the pseudoscience of tarot, but I'm saying that there's. Just seeing the magician and the empress and, you know, the hanging man next to your desk and say, okay, yeah, we live in a really rich world um, has been really helpful for me. And how about a favorite habit? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. So my favorite habit is, is private journaling. I've been doing this for a long time. It's morning pages. Julia Cameron wrote a book called The Artist's Way that's like this just brain dump. When any time that my brain is, is tangled up in a knot with an open question, I'll just type furiously until all the knots get worked out. And it's been a really, really helpful tool for me over the years to figure that out through that. Because otherwise you need to go on a long walk or ask someone out to, to coffee and, and talk about it. But this is a way that's always handy and you can always use it to to figure something out for yourself. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? 
BusterBenson.com is my website with all kinds of weird things. And um, at Buster on Twitter is where I, I live on the internet. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. Have one you know, proactive disagreement about something that you feel is important and don't keep it bottled up and see how it goes and be patient with yourself if it doesn't go right the first time. <laughs> Buster, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks and keep on having some lovely productive disagreements. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. I was so struck by Buster's statistic. 85% of people believe they have some crucial information about the business, about the company that they're not talking about because they don't want to start an argument. Wow. What are you holding on to? What are your colleagues or your direct reports or your boss holding on to and not sharing because of this, this fear, this resistance to conflict that's a little spooky? Or encouraging if you're an optimist in terms of, well, what's the opportunity available if we can facilitate an environment where these productive disagreements are cool and healthy and supportive and actually make us appreciate each other more if you do so. So the fear might be strong, but the rewards are great. So I encourage you to go for it. Follow those eight steps as Buster suggests and see what you learn. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F519. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You got Charlie Gilkey in the house and he is talking about how to be productive in a positive way in terms of getting what really matters done, done for you. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.